Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for September 2017. I am writer hyphen Terminator Trilogy that will ignore the previous 12 attempts at a Terminator Trilogy. We can do it this time, guys. Lee Zachariah and with me, as always, is... Hi, I'm writer hyphen film critic hyphen mother hater, Rochelle Semenovich. <laughs> That is uh, that, a spoiler alert on that, <laughs> on that review. Uh, we will be joined by this month's guest in our next segment. But as Rochelle flagged, we will be talking about this month's films, some of this month's films, including Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Now, was that a clever ruse? Did you actually love it and you were throwing people off or not, not a fan? I'm not a fan at all, Lee. Um, I, I had high hopes for this film, but... I found it just really pretentious and I don't know it it felt like it was it was straining for some kind of profundity but it was just a silly silly film on the other hand it stayed with me some of the images and some of the um the scenes in it it's kept me sort of trying to work it out like a puzzle that isn't actually worth working out <laughs> but what about you well, when we actually saw the film together, and if you remember, I came out and had no idea what I thought of it. I was like, I think I either loved that or hated it, and I don't know which. And it took me about a week to figure out that I think I loved it. Like I, Okay. Yeah, I think I'm really on board with it. Um, it really, it, it stuck with me. I think part of it is that, like, I love the idea of an art film, which is a, an overt biblical allegory taking place within a single location. I should point out, the internet has been filled with hot takes and interpretations and people being confused and other people yelling at them being confused and Aronofsky chiming in with his own interpretation and explanation for what it means. I've avoided all of that. I have no idea what anyone else thinks Mm -hmm. this film is about. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going off my own thing. Uh, And it seems insane to me in the context of hyphenates it seems insane to me that we talked about Aronofsky's works back in 2011 before he'd made Noah and Mother because Mm. those films are so key to him. Like back when he made Pi, which was his first film. He had this real... I mean, he's a a very Jewish director. He has a very Talmudic approach to talking about uh, religion. And so when Mother sort of... You know, Mother is essentially the Bible. And when it delves into the New Testament, it stops feeling like, I guess, the introspective criticism that he's had in in the past. It feels like him criticising his own religion. And now it's like, no, the whole thing's up for grabs. Uh, the question I have, and again, I've avoided all the interpretations of it, is who Jennifer Lawrence represents. Right from the beginning, it's clear that Javier Bardem is God, Ed Harris is Adam, Michelle Pfeiffer is Eve, the Gleason brothers are Cain and Abel. Lawrence, I was like, you know, is she Mary? Is she Moses, who questions God and, and is punished for it? Is she Lucifer, cast out of heaven, because she can't understand why God loves humans more than her? And I just, I, I was fascinated by the fact that that is the one part of the film that I think is most open to interpretation is who she represents. You don't think she's Mother Earth? And it's yeah, a again, it's an it environmental be. kind of metaphor about, you know, humans coming in and fucking up God's beautiful creation or God letting it happen. That makes know. total sense to me. Like, that, that absolutely fits. Then <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, we've now got four valid, you know, just between the two of us, that's four valid interpretations of who she could be. And I could argue any of them passionately it's i find it a really interesting film in terms of auteurism as well because yeah. it's about a creator it's not just about god it's about him as creator and the fact that like i try to avoid the gossip stuff but the fact that he's in a relationship with jennifer lawrence yeah and that the woman you see at the beginning 
is played by Rachel Weiss, his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend or whatever. That's like, you know, that that that's when you literally cannot separate the author from the work. Mm. At mm. this point, he's really... I don't know what statement he's making other than I am God and I know I can be a bit of a jerk sometimes. Yeah. I've heard this film described as a Rorschach test, um, which is, you know, that, that psychological device where people see whatever they want to see in something. Mm. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was I was watching it when I was going through a terrible bout of writer's block myself with um, a novel I'm writing. And I thought that it... I mean, it is about... Uh, Javier Bardem plays a writer who is blocked... Um, and I read it as this sort of thing about create, creating and the way we use up the people and things in our life when we're trying to make something and the way we abuse them um, for the sake of art. So, yeah, it's it's a film that is interesting in that I think it it is it can be so many different things. Mm-hmm. And um, he's so good at creating, you know, this psychological horror, this fever dream, this kind of... You know, I think it was great in um, Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan. Even loved Noah, as crazy as that may sound. A lot of people did not love that film. But this one, it just, yeah, it kind of felt like it was silly, mm. you know? Yeah, well, I think I think he's owning that with the exclamation point in the title. <laughs> <laughs> well, a very different film from Mother is uh, the Matthew Vaughan sequel, Kingsman, The Golden Circle which is the sequel to the, I guess, the Chav as James Bond film, Kingsman, The Secret Service, from a couple of years ago. Are you a fan of, of that original film? I did enjoy it. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. I just went into it completely blank. I did enjoy it, but I found its sexual politics mm. questionable. It's also a very silly film, um, and The Golden Circle, this sequel, is silly too, but I enjoyed it a lot more because I felt like I, I was on board with the franchise now. I knew what it was doing. There were some more really, really sexist jokes in there, but, yeah, um, yeah let's just <laughs> just enjoy it for what it is, I guess. Yeah. I, I Look, I think I'm a bit the same. I mean, I loved the first film and was undone by those... You know, there is there is some stuff which stops being playful and I think becomes just really, you mm. know, unpleasant in that first film. But maybe, I did. Maybe we should just say what what that thing in the first film was, which you know it involves anal sex as a reward for saving the world, and they carried that joke into this film. I must say, in several places. And I laughed, so... Um. I actually didn't mind it in this film because they they sort of... For, for one, you know, I have a lot of... Like, I love the James Bond films, but I have a massive problems with, the, with that franchise, which I'll go into when the next Bond film comes out, I guess. But there was the idea that she was this disposable reward in the first mm. film, and she saw herself that way. He's in a committed relationship with her now. Like, mm. the two of them, like, he's meeting the parents, and... I'm not saying it excuses the joke in the first one, but it kind of makes it a bit more, well, you know, this guy's for real, she's for, you know, they've got something real there. And the callback to that joke is, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but I I really liked, they they find a very subversive spin on it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. later on that. I think they do something uh, very clever with it. Look, I really, I, I really enjoy this film. I think there are a few people who do ridiculous action scenes the way Matthew Vaughan does. I mean, a country western version of Word Up scoring an action sequence in a 50s diner town in the middle of a South American forest 
It's just, it's superb. And I think it loses something, you know, the Pygmalion of the first film. Mm. That, that was one of the big appeals, is this guy learning to be a gentleman. And yes. Coming from a poorer past and discovering that it's not about breeding, it's about who you... You know, that's, it's a really nice Pygmalion story, that first film. And we lose a little bit of that because he's already the gentleman when the film yeah. begins. But I still, like, I like the fact that they're willing to change the characters, they're willing to shake up the formula from film to film, there is actual progression, and, you know, it's still, it's still a lot of fun. And they're prepared to kill off some pretty key characters too. Yeah. Um, you just don't know what's going to happen. Anything could happen here. And um, I think it's lovely that um, Colin Firth's back for this film too. And mm. he, he brings a real sort of sweetness and gravitas to the proceedings and um, grounds it, I suppose, yeah. even in its most uh, outrageous, silly moments. Yeah, I don't disagree with the people who felt that it, it undercut the the death in the first film by bringing him back but at the same time I think that's overwhelmed by the fact that he is such a great presence his character is so great Firth plays him so well that I think you lose more by maintaining that Mm. death into this film it's so much nicer to have him stick around I think so there's literally no segue I can think of between these films but (laughs) Stephen King just turned 70 and he's having a bit of renaissance at the moment there are so many adaptations of his work and they finally made the It film they've been talking about for for so long i cannot judge this film as an adaptation because i'm unfamiliar with the source material um but as a standalone work i think this film floats Mm. i i really liked it i think it's it's so the kids are all distinct and interesting the way they come together is well executed and, and satisfying and it's just and that's the core of it more than the horror elements which which are great i think having a group of kids who you know whose relationships you believe and who are relatable and appealing i think uh yeah i i i thought it was fantastic i thought bill sarsgaard was perfectly creepy uh, as pennywise um and yeah i just i really enjoyed it i enjoyed it a lot too and um I'm a bit of a newbie to this um, to this story as well, but I've done a bit of, you know, digging around and, and reading about it. And um, so this story focuses on the teens um, who are fighting this this evil, creepy clown who is sort of haunting the township. So many people are going missing. Children are going missing in grisly deaths. But the teens have this kind of... They're called the Losers, they're a gang, and they have a lot of horrors in the real world um, with, with, you know, parents, mm. their, their family lives. There's child abuse, there's bullying, there's lots of um, unhappiness there too. But there's a real sweetness to that story, the, the, the realistic elements of this story um, punctuated by those horror scenes. And I thought that just had a really lovely kind of stand-by-me vibe. Yeah. Yeah, whereas I think this Stephen King novel um, goes back and forth between the adult characters and the teens. That's and, what I've heard, yeah. Um, so that's going to be It, Chapter 2, mm. which is going to be the next film, and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it should be good. Hope, hopefully a little less CGI. I I know a few people have been complaining about the CGI, and it, it and I think what threw me was the unnecessary simple things like the paper boat floating down mm-hmm. in the beginning. And that was so obviously CGI. If it turns out not to be, I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> but, yeah, I think there was a slightly too much of a reliance on that. But that was like that was my only issue with it. And um, Sophia Lillis. Oh, my goodness. She, she is, is so great in this film. She plays the only girl in yeah. the seven-member gang. And... Um, 
Yeah, it's it's just such a beautiful performance. She's kind of fresh faced and and um, and innocent, but also clever and a little bit um, a little bit rebellious as well. And I think a lot of people will be quite relieved that the um, the famous orgy scene from the book is not repeated in this. Uh, film because I think in the book um, to unify the gang everyone has to have a go with um, what's her name Be- uh, Beverly Beverly yeah. yes I <laughs> just found out about, I found out about that after I'd seen the film and I thought someone was playing a joke on me so I looked it up and it was <laughs> real that is in the book yeah uh, I'm so glad they cut that I think part of it you know I guess they age the characters down a little bit are they young or are they older in the film no I think they're about the same about the same yeah uh, yeah, that that was an easy cut. I think yes. <laughs> that's a that's a slam dunk of, a, of an edit right there. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to part two. Uh, yeah. Should should be getting that in a couple of years, I think. Did uh, you think this was scary? Were you scared? Y- yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think there were some very well executed scares. A lot of like things in the background. A lot of jump scares. A lot of jump scares as well. Like there was a good mix of different types of scares. Uh, yeah. But not too scary. I took a bunch of 14-year-olds and um, none of them have had nightmares so far. Um, So I think it's probably something you could take a a reasonably sophisticated early teenager to see. Um, Yeah, it's it's scary, but it's still still fun scary and not just, you know, going to come back and haunt you. Mm. Uh, Now, there is an Australian film that everyone has been raving about. I was unable to get to see it, which I'm cursing myself for. You have seen it. Um, The Australian comedy, the Melbourne shot comedy, That's Not Me. Is that right what it's called? That's Still Me. That's That's Not Me. There are a whole bunch of films like I'm Still Here and I'm Not There. And (laughs) and they all get jumbled up. I'm not not sure if I'm watching a Bob Dylan biopic or uh, Joaquin Phoenix going off off his head. But uh, this one's That's Not Me. That's Not Me, yes. It's about an aspiring actress called Polly who has a twin sister who's also an actress and she keeps getting mistaken for her twin sister who's much more successful than her. Um, So she starts to, you know, impersonate her and use, use... that to her advantage but it's a really sort of sad and thoughtful but also funny uh look at fame and the vagaries of fame and wanting to wanting to make it and what it might mean to either hold on to your childhood dream or give it up and um so I think it's a really thoughtful and sweet film with a heroine who's kind of a bit monstrous let's be honest and there aren't that many I can't think of that many Australian films since Muriel's wedding that have had a funny and slightly monstrous heroine at their sort of um, centre. Ah, uh, Candy. Candy? Lots of heroine in that. Uh, <laughs> in Neil Armfield, yeah. Little Fish, lots of... Australia loves heroin. Uh, dodgy hair. You are bad. This is directed by Gregory Erdstein. Erdstein? Uh, I'd go with Steen, but... Steen? Uh, and written by him and his wife, Alice Fulcher, who plays um, both the twins. Uh, they're a husband and wife movie-making team um, who... It's their first feature. I think, you know, there has been a lot of raving about this film and I wouldn't want to oversell it because mm. it's really modest. I think it was made for 60 grand with a lot of favours called in. But it looks great and it has some really, you know, some real laughs in it. There's... Um, a scene where Polly goes to LA and um, stays with 
Isabel Lucas, who plays this um, kind of semi... She's an actress who's kind of making it there, but kind of not. And she's been a bit... turned a bit crazy and a little bit obsessive through that whole process of trying to make it in Hollywood. Mm. And, yeah, it's it's got... It takes some interesting... Um, takes you to some interesting places. Maybe it sort of peters out a little bit towards the end, but I think it's worth seeing. It's an Australian film that's, that's yeah, does some, doing something a bit different. Excellent. I'll definitely check it out. Mm. Looking forward to it. So when we come back, we'll be joined, well, I will be joined by Michael Ian Black to talk about uh, his filmmaker of the month. You'll be uh, leaving us for a segment yes. uh, due to what I'm going to pretend is time travel and <laughs> Skype times and... Uh, I'll pretend I'm going off to record it now. Really happened last night. Thank you. (laughs) But we'll check back in afterwards. We are now joined by this month's guest, actor, writer, comedian, director, and fifth thing, Michael Ian Black. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Ah, thank you for joining us. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, yeah, which which filmmaker have you chosen to talk to us about? I've chosen uh, Sly... The Italian Stallion, Sylvester Stallone. Excellent. So what? why Stallone? I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't want that to sound pejorative. We ask that of all of our guests, but, but why Stallone? I will tell you why. Um, because I feel like Stallone may be unique, uniquely among guys who are uh, in charge of billion-dollar franchises, has perpetually made movies that uh, seem to be about his own resentment towards Hollywood, uh, his own insecurities, his own uh, uh, emotional hangups, his own feeling like an outsider in a world that he has conquered like few others. And there's something very kind of touching to me about that. Uh, And so if you watch his movies through that prism, they – they become kind of fascinating emotional studies. Wow. Right. I can definitely see that with the, with some of the Rocky sequels. Uh, you can definitely see the, I guess, the reflection of his, of what he's going through as a, as a, as a burgeoning movie star. And as, as Rocky becomes a star, there are a lot of interesting parallels there. I, um, I, I definitely knew his reputation as a self-made star, you know, a guy who wrote him, wrote his own way in, um, but until recently, I only knew him from his work for hire, you know, the, the, the action films that you'd find in video stores, and I'm, I'm dating myself there. But um, up until a month ago, I had not seen any of the Rocky or Rambo films. Like, I'd not actually seen a single thing he directed. So mm. it's been fascinating to sort of rediscover someone whose work I was familiar with in one way, I guess that sort of broad public persona, and then seeing what he brings to it from the, from the other side of the camera. Yeah. And uh, he is a fairly prolific writer. Um, He's written, I'm just looking at IMDb, he has 30 writing credits, although some of them are not necessarily things that he wrote. So like Creed Mm. 2, he'll be in, but it's his writing credits, just characters based on in Creed, the same thing. Um, And I think there's other ones like that. But even in his just his writing, uh, it's that same thing. It's that same outsider uh through uh, through grit and determination overcomes some physical uh uh obstacle to become 
the better version of himself. I mean, I, I don't think it was the first script he wrote, but the first script that was produced was uh, 1976's Rocky, which he didn't direct. Um, but he wrote it, and it's 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 a hell of a debut. It um, it won. I you know I try to resist comparing things based on their Oscar wins, but winning Best Picture above All the President's Men and Taxi, uh, oh sorry, Taxi Driver and Network and a Hal Ashby film is is no small feat. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hell of a way to make your mark. And, you know, you can definitely see that influence that new Hollywood had, had on him, that unconventional structure, a really unusual romance, an ending that's not unrealistically happy. Like it's sort of, you know, you feel uplifted at the end, but it's still kind of bleak. So he definitely knew the way the wind was going and was able to write something that was quite different to a lot of the boxing films that had come beforehand. I mean, Rocky is... It's one of the greatest movies of all time. Mm. I mean, it's a great movie. It's dramatic as hell. Um, the stakes are really high. It's really funny. He's really funny in it. It's beautifully cast. Uh, it looks great. And it has, yeah, one of the best endings of all sports movies. The guy who wins by losing. Um, and it holds up. I mean, it's it's an amazing movie. Mm. Yeah, it definitely holds up. I mean, watching it for the first time in, you know, 2017, it's definitely, uh, you know, there, there are no calculations that have to be made or, you know, apologies that you make in your head, like adjustments, like, oh, this was a film from the 70s. It was, you know, it, def it definitely holds up compared to even recent boxing films, um, Southpaw and Wrestler and things that definitely have right. their DNA in what, you know, they're, they're the, the descendants of what he wrote. Well, uh, it's not overly stylistic. I mean, it's shot. Um, I mean, it, ha it it feels like it feels like the seventies, but that's the time period it's set in. But there's nothing kind of uh, there's nothing arty about it in that that would that would uh, dictate that it's this is a seventies film. Hmm. Um, it's it's clearly influenced by other films that are going on around it at the same time, and that's another interesting about another interesting thing I think about Sylvester Stallone is he's clearly paying attention to things that are sort of happening in the world around him as a writer and as a director. And it gets filtered through the weird Sylvester Stallone prism um, and comes out on the other end. I mean, just staying alive, for example, his 1983 sequel to uh, Saturday Night Live is, you know, it's like it's such an 80s film and it's such a Stallone film at the same time. I mean, they're they're. It's just it's interesting how he synthesizes his own times through his own uh, his own vision. Mm. It's it's such a strange entry in his filmography. I remember it was pre IMDb. I was working in a video store, and almost every day I'd whenever I'd walk past that shelf, I'd pick up the Staying Alive VHS just to see. Okay, that definitely says written and directed by Sylvester Stallone. I did not <laughs> imagine that. It's. Uh... It's a strange one. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not something that you'd necessarily think of on the surface, uh, a, a, a kind of dance movie. But at the same time, it's got all the familiar Stallone tropes. Here's a guy from the outside. In this case, uh, Tony, whatever his last name is, coming in from Brooklyn to Manhattan, an outsider trying to make his way in. Uh, it's about uh, physical competition in a very intensely physical world. It's got um, all the kind of uh, romantic tropes that Sylvester Stallone likes, the kind of uh, 
uh, girls on on the margins who maybe are going to survive and maybe they won't. And here's this sort of Romeo coming to rescue them. I mean, it's 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 classic Stallone. Mm. And and I think it really speaks to how, you know, he is definitely a franchise filmmaker. Like, as I said, I had not seen a Rocky or a Rambo film. So in order to see the eight films that he had directed, I ended up watching 16 films Mm -hmm. um, just to, you know, catch up with all the various franchises. And I think he's really interesting as a franchise director and, and writer because he understands, he's got really good instincts for where sequels need to go, like not repeating exactly what came beforehand, but keeping the elements that won people over in the first place. Yeah. And and that's, that's, and he was like the, one of the first, if not the first to, to recognize that. Mm. I mean, there weren't film cycles in the way in the seventies that there are now, everything now is viewed as a franchise and you wouldn't necessarily have looked at Rocky like a franchise when it first came out, the story uh, could have felt complete. And then he throws on at the end, Apollo going, there's not going to be a rematch. There's not going to be a rematch. Mm. And you're going, well, he's already thinking of the sequel uh, by the time he's finished making this first one. And this is in, this is when blockbusters, I mean, what were the blockbusters coming out around then? Godfather, mm. uh, Jaws maybe hadn't quite come out or maybe it had just come out. I think Jaws uh, might have been around Rocky II. Yeah. yeah. So there, there, there wasn't – I don't think there was this – Star Wars hadn't come out. There wasn't this franchise mentality, but he clearly already had it in his mind that this was going to be some sort of film cycle. And he's talked about how from the very beginning he wanted to make a series of Rocky films – where Rocky goes from nothing, gets everything, loses everything, and returns to nothing. Um, it's a kind of it's a it's it's it kind of speaks to his uh, brilliance as just a a marketer and a guy who just had foresight in terms of where these things could go, and it anticipated where Hollywood went. And then by the time First Blood comes around, like why would that film have a sequel? And yet it spawns this entire crazy series yeah it's uh and that that's one that goes in really interesting directions uh because it's just you know the first one is about a vietnam vet you know it's not it's an action film but it's not like it's not the the premise for an action franchise as you say and then it suddenly becomes a man on a mission type thing um i i I think there's something very telling in the fact that in that series of films because it didn't start as a franchise type film but it became it that the film Rambo sequentially comes after Rambo three. So uh-huh, if you're looking right. at the numbers, yeah, it's almost like which he does with Rocky too. I mean, Rocky Balboa is what the last one. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's called Rocky Balboa, um, which is like you know, I I like that he does that. You know, a, a, a musical artists do that all the time, mm. where they'll put out ten albums and then you know the eleventh album is just their name. Yeah, where it's just like I'm really making a statement here. I'm really making a statement here, a powerful statement by just using my name. So the only uh, film he directed, which wasn't part of a larger franchise and never became part of one, was Paradise Alley in in '78. Mm-hmm. You know, off the back of Rocky, it's a huge success. It's won an Oscar, a bunch of Oscars, I think. And it was a script he'd apparently written before Rocky and had actually intended to make it with an all-African-American cast, and they wouldn't finance it. So he grudgingly 
agreed to play the lead, which is a complete flip from Rocky, where he refused to sell it unless he could play the lead. So it's, it's interesting, right. in the space of, a, of two years, that flips around completely. Um, it's an interesting film, and it's got a lot of similarities with Rocky. You can kind of see that sort of underdog fighter coming from the streets. You know, it's wrestling instead of boxing. It's, uh, yeah, it, it really, it, it highlights his interests at the time and, what, you know, the type of storytelling he, he was into. Well, Paradise Alley, which I watched for the first time last night, is fascinating if you, first of all, it's not a good movie. It's a bad movie. Um, and if you look at it from the lens of he wrote this before Rocky, it's really fascinating to look at him as a writer kind of putting together the pieces of who Sylvester Stallone is going to become as an artist. Because as you said, it is essentially Rocky, except it's the world of underground wrestling in the 40s. Um, which is weird. And he plays essentially the Paulie character in Rocky. So he plays the kind of shyster guy looking for an edge, always looking for an angle and an edge, and is sort of moving the Rocky character into the uh, world of underground wrestling so he can make a quick buck. It's got so many weird elements to it, um, stylistically, uh, like it's badly directed, I think. But but what I like about Sylvester Stallone when he directs is, particularly when he directs these kind of things that aren't don't necessarily have a, a template, and I think there's a couple examples of this, um, when, when there's not a kind of visual template already in place he really kind of swings for the fences. Like he's throwing all his ideas out there and striking out a lot. I mean this, like he's almost like Tommy Wiseau if Tommy Wiseau had talent because Stallone clearly has talent and a lot of it. But a lot of it in Paradise Alley feels like he doesn't know what to do with it. There's, it, there's, it's so mismanaged and misdirected. You have Armand Asante in there playing – there's three brothers. He plays the smart brother who's giving an entirely different performance from everybody else in the movie. He's, he's playing – he's being like this very kind of methody, almost James Dean type character. And you've got Stallone who is giving – who is who – is, if, if this is possible for you to imagine – it is Stallone playing Stallone almost like Woody Allen. There's a kind of there's a kind of like wisecracking New Yorky, almost neurotic thing going on with his character Cosmo that is so kind of uh, not funny <laughs> and a little bit painful to watch. But he's trying, you know, he's just working so hard and he's magnetic. I mean, he's really magnetic. Well, he made two films with Woody Allen at that point. You know, maybe it had rub off, rubbed off on him a little bit. He did. What did he make with Woody Allen? He was just, uh, he was like a, a gun for hire in scrolling IMDb. Um, I forget the film. association. Oh, Bananas. There we go. Bananas. He oh, was oh, Subway he's in Bananas? Thug. Yeah, Subway That's Thug amazing. number one. It's, yeah, I watched that uh, recently and it's always a surprise when he pops up. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, he he clearly, it's that same thing of he, he clearly like 
he he just wears his influences on his sleeve in such a direct and earnest way. Um, and I find it touching. I really do. Mm. Um, I think the fact that he comes up short, particularly in like Paradise Alley, which has the craziest ending too, that totally kind of undercuts the whole film. I find it really touching that he, that he, that he swings for the fences and fails. How do you find his direction after this? Like starting with Rocky two in, in 79, he kind of takes over the franchise completely and, and, uh, steps behind the camera. Rocky two's great. Yeah. Rocky two's really strong. I mean, it's, that's what I mean when I say, uh, when he doesn't have, when he doesn't have a template, because clearly he's working from the Rocky template and it's clear that the Rocky template was largely informed by him because there's, there's, there's just too much Stallone in Rocky for him to have not been involved in the direction of Rocky. It's just too, there's just too much, but, but what Rocky has that like Paradise Alley doesn't have is restraint, um, a, a directorial restraint, and it, it it's streamlined, it's disciplined, and Rocky Two is is also. You can see in Rocky Two like Stallone's kind of feeling himself a little bit as an actor. You know, there's there's kind of there's kind of less insecurity in the character of Rocky, more confidence in the character of Rocky. But my sense is it also mirrors what Stallone is going through. And I feel like you can look at, as I said in the beginning, I feel like you can look at every single Stallone film through this prism where it's Rocky now having found some success, having been um, cheered on by the world. And this is Stallone's story too. But he still hasn't gotten the brass ring. He still for whatever he's accomplished, still isn't the champion. And in Rocky II, Sylvester Stallone is really trying to become the champion. And he does. He does. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great sequel. It's a terrific follow-up. It doesn't win the Oscar like Rocky did, but it establishes Stallone as a viable director and cements his status as a... A, a, a terrific actor. Yeah, I mean, you've got me thinking about something that I hadn't considered before, which was that I, I thought it was almost funny that each film, almost almost every film or Rocky film, seems to start with he says he's retired. He gives a press conference. Somebody crashes the press conference and baits him into another fight. And I was like, okay, that's that's how that's that's how he likes to evoke the drama of we're going to have another fight, but. You know, now that you've said that, it makes me think that that's what he's saying is like, I want to go and do other things. I want to move on. But the success of this has shackled me and they keep pulling me back in over and over again. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And I think you start to see that really clearly in Rocky three. Yeah. In Rocky three. So Rocky three happens in 88. And before that, he has appeared in several films, none of which have done much. I think Rocky three is 82. I think maybe it's Rambo. That's uh, 82. Right. Yeah. So Rocky three is 82. He's done victory before that Nighthawks before that. And then Rocky two. So Nighthawks and victory, both are films that haven't gone anywhere. And so now he's in a position where like, he kind of needs Rocky three to work. Hmm. 
Um, I think he is a guy who really wanted to break out of the sort of Sylvester Stallone stereotype that he was locked into and over the years has tried many ways to do that. He's tried these comedies. Uh, he's tried – I mean he became an action star. Mostly in comedy I guess is real, where he really clearly wanted to break out. Um, and then later he does something like Copland uh, as an actor, which works really well actually. Mm. But it's these, it's these franchise things that he creates that clearly, like you said, they keep dragging – him back in and Rocky three, I think is a sort of beautiful parable about that where here's a guy who on the surface has everything and is living this cushy, great life and is maybe forgetting his own hunger and needs to be reminded of who he is. Mm. Uh, It's a great parable of just fucking Sylvester Stallone. And there's so much about the commodification of it. Like you you see that in Rocky two, but certainly in Rocky three, I mean, even almost unconsciously, like there's like Creed keeps saying I have the tiger over and over again, like he's got a financial stake in the song. And mm-hmm. um, uh, it's actually the origins of Mr. T's I Pity the Fool. Like this is where it first appeared. And then he started saying it, you know, in everything right. else he appeared in. So <laughs> it's like Stallone's creating franchises everywhere he goes. He can't write a line of dialogue without <laughs> spinning off into sequels. Um do you think where, where does it fall? Where do the wheels fall off the wagon for you? Because I know uh, before I watched it, I was warned about Rocky Four, and sure enough, Paulie falling in love with the robot did not disappoint. Oh yeah, I mean Rocky Four's. First of all, I've seen every Rocky movie, mm. and will watch every Rocky movie uh, that ever comes out. Some of them are bad. Rocky Four is bad. It's not the worst one, but it's bad. Um, it's, it's Rocky as America. He just is America fighting the Soviet union. Uh, and the Soviet union is this kind of, in the character of Drago is this soulless, uh, cold killing machine. And, and Rocky is showing them that America is, is all heart. And in the end, he defeats – he single-handedly defeats the Soviet Union. It's, it's insane. Um, and my sense, you know, if you look at it through the prism, which is my thesis, mm-hmm. that it's all – that all these films are about Sylvester Stallone, it's easy to – and, and uh, the, the Rambo 3 comes out – a couple years after this, which is the same film. It's just Rambo beating the world. It's about ego and it's about Stallone's, I think, overinflated sense of self at this point and kind of feeling untouchable in a certain way because he has made it like he has overcome the odds like Rocky, like Rambo and has become this global superstar and understands as a filmmaker or seems to believe as a filmmaker that it has to be more, more, more like it's in sort of anticipating the Michael Bay movement. Mm. Uh, it has to get bigger, louder, faster, crazier. And so he starts making these bigger, louder, crazier movies and they really date themselves um, very, very quickly. They're, they're, they're moments in time and 
they're absurd. They were absurd at the time. They're more absurd now. Well, especially the uh, the idea of, particularly in Rocky Four, the thing that hit me about it was that Rocky is the underdog in this film, and yet he's been established as the champ. And it's this weird thing that uh, that America tends to do of being the winner, but also being the underdog. So suddenly we get to this training montage and Drago is this well-funded, polished machine and he's taking steroids. So, you know, it's not even all above board. And suddenly Rocky's like, you know, running up the side of a snowy hill and pulling trees around. Like, this is all I've got and I'm, I'm going to win. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of, I, I don't know. I was, I, I was working on a theory that I'm not sure holds water that Rambo and Rocky uh, the sort of the two sides of America. Rocky is the the domestic thing, the perpetual underdog, but always winning, but still an underdog. And Rambo is, you know, American foreign policy. You know, good guys of the world in a good the good guys in the world of bad guys. You know, both series are complex. There is a lot of complexity in them, but you know, if you boil them down to their essence, it's almost like you know they're the flip sides of the USA. Yeah, I think that's really smart and and. I'll go with that. Okay. I'll absolutely <laughs> go with that. Rambo is about the projection of strength into the world, and uh, and Rocky is about finding inner strength in. It, it's about yeah the strength within, and uh, Rambo is about the strength without. Not very succinctly put. Uh, let's. I'll edit it so it sounds like I said that. Um, the uh, so do you know about his relationship with the Godfather films? No. Okay, so this is this is an anecdote I remember from way back, and I looked it up to make sure I hadn't imagined it. So he got he was turned down to be an extra in the first Godfather. He passed. He was passed over. He couldn't even play, uh, you know, someone standing in the background of the wedding scene. And he was so crushed by this, he turned to writing and said, "All right, I got I got to write my way out of this. I'll write myself a role." Fast forward to years later, and Paramount's trying to figure out what to do with Godfather Three. They're desperate for him to do it. They show him a mocked up poster with his face on it and written, directed and starring Sylvester Stallone, Godfather three. And he's really embarrassed by this. Cause you know, it's a, it's a big assumption to make, but Paramount wanted him to write, direct and star in it. And John Travolta to play Corleone's son. And history would have gone in a very interesting direction. Had that project come to fruition. I'm, I can't even imagine. I mean, I can't imagine in a way because I think Paradise Alley in particular has a lot of Coppola in it. Um, mm, yeah. There, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's the neighborhood, it's mob, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's cinematic in that way. It has, um, it's dark and it's moody, um, and it's about family and loyalty. But the idea of, I don't know. I mean, I'd be. I, I, it would be bizarre. Just, I'd love to hear his take on what the Godfather Three should have been. Uh, that would be fascinating. Mm. I don't think. I mean, I'm not. I don't necessarily think it would have been bad. Um, and I don't necessarily think Travolta would have been miscast. Wait, what year was that? That was. I think they were talking to him. Well, certainly before, whenever Godfather Three came out, but it would have been around. 90-something? Yeah, I think around 1990. Travolta might have done it too. He loved working with... He once said Stallone was his favourite director. So There's a very weird moment in... Uh, a tiny moment in Staying Alive where 
So, Travolta's walking down the street, bumps shoulders into a guy. The guy turns around and it's Stallone. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've screen capped that uh, for the show. What now. is that? I, like, I'm, I, I, I I thought about that for 10 minutes. <laughs> like, what was the point of that? The Hitchcock cameo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Just, just that? Yeah. I mean, it seemed like he was saying, it seemed like he was saying something there. Like I'm passing the torch to you, kid. Like what? Like what? Like what? What was he saying? I like I don't. I'm really trying to understand what that moment was. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm coming up short. Or they were just like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I walked in down the street and then you bumped into me? Like was Stallone playing Stallone there? Because Stallone's dressed up. He looks awesome. Like do, like does does Tony recognize that that's Sylvester Stallone that he just bumped into? I that was unclear. To me. I, I took it as just a guy on the street. Uh-huh. That was that was my reading on it, um, uh-huh. and and I, I that conversation you just imagined of them going, hey, wouldn't it be funny? That's, you know, that that is how I feel that moment came about. They're like out on the street, hey, let's let's do this thing. You're probably right. I'm probably looking way into it, <laughs> but but I thought it was really weird. So he doesn't direct for a long time. You know, he he sort of has a comeback with Copland, as you say, and then sort of a come down with a few uh, questionable. Uh, action films or crime films and then there's this he hits the mid 2000s and we get the greatest hits package we get Rocky Balboa in 2006 we get Rambo in 2008 and the Expendables in 2010 which feels like you know him resurrecting the all-purpose action heroes you know all the other films he did and he's definitely recognized that there is a hunger for there is a nostalgia factor. All the people who grew up on his films want to see a return to that. And, the, you know, maybe uh, maybe the tide has, has turned and come back around and it's his time again and people are ready for a serious, smart take on, you know, on sports films, on action films, on shoot 'em ups Well, to me, the most interesting of those um, is definitely The Expendables because... It, to me, speaks like perfectly to this theory that I have that everything, all the films that Stallone makes are essentially the Sylvester Stallone uh, story. And The Expendables is literally a guy, Sylvester Stallone, looking back on his career going, we're not, we're, everybody thinks we're too old, we're washed up. What we did is no longer relevant, and I'm going to prove them all wrong. Mm. And he does. He does in the story does, and the film box office-wise does. He creates out of nowhere this totally new franchise. And by the way, bad film. Um, Dumb film. The Expendables are terrible movies, but they're successful movies, and Stallone manages to, like, pull another fucking franchise out of his hat. I mean, he's brilliant in this way. He, he, he absolutely intuits that there's a nostalgia for these guys. And if I can get them all together on screen, it's going to be this big, fun, campy, uh, success. And he's totally right. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, I, that, the Stallone films, the Schwarzeneggers, all those action stars, that was not my jam growing up. But when he put together a film with you know we're all together and we're going to fight some bad guys i was like yeah i would watch that i feel nostalgia for this thing that i wasn't really into in the first place um 
So I can imagine it definitely would have excited people who were into those films. Uh, I find uh, Rambo quite interesting, um, especially in light of, you know, he's... he's and there's got to be a, a, a delicate way to say this. There's a lot happening in Burma at the moment. Right. And I put on this film in the middle of watching all the news reports of it, and there's a film about how bad everything in Burma is. I'm like, that's... You know, I, you know, he's got his finger on something. He know, he, you know, there's some sort of, there is more relevance to his films, even the the straight out action films that perhaps he gets credit for because that. I, 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 I'm trying to say the sentence, the Rambo film in which he shoots a bunch of guys in Burma is more nuanced than it sounds, and it's hard to come out. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was an interesting watch. I'll say that. Yeah, I mean, he's smart. I mean, that's the th- that's the other thing about Sylvester Stallone that I feel like runs through his movies is Sylvester Stallone wants the world to know that Sylvester Stallone is really fucking smart mm. and and that he shouldn't be misjudged because he looks like that, because he talks like that, because he's from the streets, so, you know, so to speak. He's from the outside. Um, and it's a theme, I think, that really runs through his thing that the, that 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 a guy doesn't have to say a lot or spout philosophy to have a real intelligence and an innate intelligence. Um, incidentally, I think Stallone probably can spout philosophy and certainly knows a lot about the world of art and, and culture and uh, probably literature. I mean, I think he's a really well-read, well-read well-rounded guy mm. um, who I think you know kind of buries that a little bit now because it goes against his uh his brand um but i think particularly in the beginning of his career a lot of it a lot of what he was doing was about proving that he's a smart guy yeah yeah i'd agree with that and i I certainly think he comes off as quite smart in his interviews you know there are some really interesting interviews with him out there and he's he's very he's very self-aware i mean you know you couldn't have written the the rocky sequels without being that aware of of your place in pop culture and um oh yeah yeah and well, yeah, and, and you would never have dreamed of the Expendables without that. I mean, that's just a pure marketing exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I, I know he understands the campiness of it, but I also think there's something deeper going on there, which is uh, a kind of fuck you to the world. I think the Expendables is a giant fuck you to Hollywood uh, and and saying you think we're done. We're not done. Right. I mean, it's called the Expendables. <laughs> which is hilarious to me. There's a line in Rocky two or three where he says something about being expendable. And I was wondering uh, how deliberate that was, if that's just a word that is in his mind a lot, or if it was a deliberate callback to that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, certainly possible. Uh, it's also funny to me that there's a huge set piece in paradise alley that involves arm wrestling. And then later he writes an arm wrestling movie. Yeah, yeah. Where you're like, that doesn't feel like. I mean, you don't you don't necessarily feel like arm wrestling is going to be uh, the subject is going to sustain a whole movie, and yet he writes over the top uh, the arm wrestling movie in 1987, uh, about ten years after Paradise Alley. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't made that connection. In a weird way, Stallone is emblematic, I think, of a lot of people who 
view themselves as outsiders, who view themselves as, and, and in particular in terms of entertainment, because entertainment feels to the outsider like a world that is impenetrable, a world that is um, that sort of picks its winners almost at random, like you're the most beautiful, so you come with us, or you're the most brilliant, so you come with us. And to somebody who wants to be in that world, it can feel, it might feel impossible to enter that domain. And I get the sense that Stallone felt like one of those guys. And I feel like one of those guys. And he felt like he was going to do whatever it took, including soft core porn at one point, to break into that world by hook or by crook. In Paradise Alley, which is like one, if not the first screenplay he wrote, then among the first he wrote, is entirely about that. Rocky is entirely about that. And his career really was entirely about that. And you can also sense, even when he's made it, the frustration of never being fully accepted by the community um, that I think he thinks, and probably correctly, that people still look down on him a little bit as a muscle-bound goof and uh, nothing more than an action star. And everything that he's done in his career, or sort of outside of his career and within his career, uh, has been about trying to prove them wrong and trying to assert himself as, uh, you know, in a sense, an auteur. And he is. And then I think as we get to the mid 2000s, the expendables is the ultimate expression of that. It's the ultimate fuck you to these people. And he surrounds himself with other people who are exactly like him, other people who were outsiders, who broke their way in literally through muscle, which is a lot of what uh, Stallone's career is about and ended up succeeding in a business that looked down on them and laughed at them and thought they were idiots. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's kind of this beautiful story. And so I'll, I'll just always have a soft spot in my heart for Sylvester Stallone. And the fact that he sometimes makes bad movies. You know, the fact that as a guy who has had every opportunity, like he's failed creatively, he's failed sometimes. And he's succeeded wildly sometimes. And that also speaks to, I think, everybody's artistic ambitions and artistic endeavors. He's not Wes Anderson, who like came out of uh, film school fully formed as a uh, as a brilliant mind and was embraced by the community immediately and was elevated to the highest uh, platforms. He's a guy who really had to scrap his whole way and I think is still scrapping. And I like that. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. This was fun. And I'm back. And that was so interesting, Lee. It sounds like you just had such a sort of um, in-depth conversation with Michael Ian Black about Stallone. And I, I think I was interested to hear that he felt that he well he identified with Stallone being an outsider in Hollywood Mm. and um, and called him an auteur, which he is. Uh, Stallone is an auteur, and that is something I never thought that I would say because um, researching for this segment on hyphenates has made me go back and look at Stallone in a whole new way. And I've got to say, I think we underestimate him at our peril. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. And I was definitely someone who underestimated him before I 
you know, as, as I said, despite knowing his history until you actually watch those films, you don't really get a, a sense of how interesting and interested he is in character journeys. You know, he became the symbol for musclehead action films. Yeah. It's like, no, he's actually got, he's got a lot more depth than that. Yeah, I think the way he looks and the way he talks make you think of him as this kind of slow, not particularly cerebral guy, basic. But he's not basic. I mean, his films aren't masterpieces. In some senses, they're ter- some of them are terrible, but some of them are really good. Mm. What do you think's your favourite? Of the ones he directed, because uh, it's very easy to say Rocket, the first Rocky film, but he didn't direct that. He did write it, but... I would probably say I really liked Rocky Three. Mm-hmm. I think there was something about that, and you know, we talked a little bit about the, you know, he was really interested in the commodification yeah. of success, and I, I found, yeah, I thought, you know, the choices he made in Rocky Three were really interesting, and especially I, I did enjoy seeing him and Creed really buddy up and yeah. become, you know, that that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I think that was probably. I, I do think his. His latter films, the Rocky Balboa and Rambo mm. in 06 and 08, they're really, really good. And yeah. they were really nice coders to, to two, you know, up and down franchises. Yeah. And what about you? Uh, I don't know about the ones that he directed, but um, I really enjoyed, and I, I'm confessing something here, watching his early performances for the first time. I'd never seen... First Blood, mm. and I'd never seen Rocky, and both of those films weren't what I expected. I thought they were going to be stupid action films, and you know, Rocky has pretty much well, it has some action in it, but it's not really a boxing film. Mm. It's a port, it's a character study, and the same with, with First Blood, that has some great action in it, and that was directed by Ted Kotcheff. Mm. But Stallone plays this wonderful wounded hero. And um, it was a really good performance. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, such an interesting film. Yeah. It holds up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It always makes me a little disappointed in the sequels because they're not yeah. as interesting as that yeah. first one. But, yeah, no, look, it was it was a real eye-opening. I mean, that's the point of, of this show is to open your eyes to artists who, you know, maybe you've got an idea about them and the truth is so much more interesting. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly count myself a Stallone fan now. Yeah, well, I'm going to keep watching uh, his films and, um, yeah, maybe not all of them, but I I really appreciated the chance to go back and have a look at some of those 80s action films that I missed out on. Yeah. (laughs) In my sheltered childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Let's let's keep this Stallone thing going right into next month. Fantastic. All right, well, that's it for this month. Uh, We will see the rest of you next month. Catch you next time. 